right, good morning. This is Jeff Edwards. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program, uh, part of uh, University of Wyoming Extension Project. And uh, in the studio today, I have uh, Jerry Urshabek. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Jeff. Feeling good? Feeling okay. Excellent, excellent. And on the line with us, we have uh, Caitlin Youngquist, who is an extension educator from the University of Wyoming in Worland. Good morning. Good morning, Caitlin. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. We're getting a little bit of rain this morning. It's kind of nice. Oh, that is kind of nice. We uh, we are ready for a few days without rain, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's uh, take a little couple of minutes for our sponsors, and we'll be right back into the program. All right, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards, Jerry Urshabek, and Caitlin Youngquist with us this morning, the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. And, uh, Jerry, the first thing on my mind uh, today is uh, um, things blooming in the rangeland. In the rangeland. And okay. uh, so I've been seeing purple penstemons, or, or they might just be called penstemon. I'm not sure. Caitlin, do you know if they're purple penstemons or penstemon only? I, I don't know. That is a good question. <laughs> okay. We'll look that one up. I happen to have on my list. I just what the name of the flowers are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and then uh, meadow salsify, which uh, is considered a weed. Um, it looks kind of grassy when it comes up. Uh, the flower itself is a, it's kind of a pretty yellow flower, but um, uh, when it turns into a seed head, it looks like a big dandelion. <laughs> dandelion on uh, steroids. <clears throat> and then uh, the other things that are going on, poppy mallow is probably starting. Um, to uh, appear in areas and I'm sure there's some others out there that I'm missing and not seeing as I'm driving around and checking things out but uh, um, things are starting to pop outside all over and if you get the opportunity you should go drive around and check things out. Especially around Torrington we have so many flowering bushes and trees uh, it's just they're just remarkable the snowball bushes yes and then there's so the white cascading kind of bushes they're just remarkable and flowering trees that those little red ones and and rose colored ones they're really nice the iris are almost done oh well oh my gosh maybe for you but for us they are just starting well we have a great variety around our office and they're gosh they're 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 getting to almost finished finished because of the <laughs> warmth that this just happened you know and so uh but we have a few that uh, you're right we have a few that are just starting to bud sure caitlin uh, what are you seeing up there well we're in the mountains we're starting to get the balsam and we have um, i think because the extra moisture we've had this year a lot of larkspur up in the mountains which can be a little problematic for some for sure up there um starting to get some flowers we we've had really bizarre weather this spring i'm sure you guys have too but in some areas We've had, in 10 days, we've had most of our annual rainfall. I was just talking to a guy down in Thermopolis. He got just over five inches in 10 days, and that's almost that's a significant part of our annual rainfall. So there's some washed-out roads and things like that. But now that we've had a lot of rain and now it's warmed up in the last couple of weeks, things are really growing fast and really popping. So it's fun to see the trees coming in and the flowers and that extra moisture and then some heat really made things grow the the grasses along the roadways and out in the pastures and those types of things are really perking up aren't they yeah in the garden we we got the community garden in a little late because of all that rain it was just so wet for a while but now that they've things have been in and got some water and some heat coming on they're really starting to grow every day you go out there and you can see things growing it's kind of fun 
it's, it's go ahead. It's hard to say. It's hard to think about Wyoming as the monsoon season. Monsoon season. Yeah, monsoon <laughs> season. And so you 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 have spring gishy summer. I mean the 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 switch just gets flipped. Yep. Yeah, it's very fast. Yeah, and uh, all sorts of strange weather this year uh, for us. I, I mean, just the amount of moisture that we've had, and and uh, uh, you know, it prevents people from getting things planted. One of the things, Caitlin, I wanted to ask you is, um, uh, I know we have uh, 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 glyphosate-resistant uh, kochia showing up in that direction. Are they are they able to manage it pretty well? I think so. I think it's easy because glyphosate is so widely used. Um, the producers here in the Bighorn Basin rely on it because we grow Roundup Ready beets or glyphosate-resistant sugar beets, glyphosate-resistant corn, and we have some alfalfa that's glyphosate-resistant. And so sure. um, it, we can over-rely on it, I think, but also a big contributor to the problem is is land homeowners, um, sure. small acreage or just homeowners folks that, you know, it's, it's kind of a good kill-everything herbicide for along the side of the road or your driveway or around your fences or something. And so um, I think that really contributes to the problem as well. And a lot of those folks don't have the education about herbicides that the producers do. Sure. So they don't necessarily understand. Um, they haven't had to take the required training or get the license that the producers do, so they may not necessarily understand the importance of rotating the mode of action or mixing different, different things together um, to prevent resistance. So that, that, I'm sure, contributes to the challenge. And I'm, I'm sure it will in every agricultural area. Yeah. 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 And yeah. just a side note on that, that, that self-protection, suiting up prior to spraying is very, very important. It's really important to read the label. And, and the, the label will tell you what uh, clothing you need to wear. Suit up. Yep. Yep. Protect yourself. Protect the environment. Yeah. Protect the pollinators. So, yeah. Um, Caitlin, I... Uh, we, you and I have been emailing back and forth about uh, different topics that uh, you might want to touch on. I'm going to turn the turn the floor over to you and uh, let you have your your time. How's that sound? Well, sure. I always love talking about soil and protecting and feeding the soil. It's something I get pretty excited about, and and I notice a lot here when I visit with folks who have gardens in the Bighorn Basin. We have really challenging soils, um, and I know you all do too down there, but we are just so dry, and we have a lot of issues with high saline soils and really, really dry and very low organic matter. And a lot of folks trying to put in gardens maybe or they don't have as much experience with gardening or they're trying to um, put a garden in a new new place or just re, um, you know kind of rehabilitate some land they have and, and really some reminders about taking care of the soil and protecting the soil and maybe thinking about it a little bit differently than maybe you have been and one thing that i um really encourage people to do is just get rid of the rototiller or at least <gasps> oh no you just gave jerry a stroke no i know <laughs> and i i say this every time i teach a class i say this and you ought to see people look at me like i just told them i don't know that they have i don't know they you just, just killed their favorite pet get that head their head wrapped around it because we've always used the rototiller we want that <clears> nice smooth seed bed it looks so pretty we put it broke till everything in get that you know nice seed bed so really thinking about what the costs of tillage are. And in our soils, one of the biggest costs is loss of organic matter, which we're just desperate for. Right. It's a great way to bring all your seeds up and get them to germinate on the surface. So we've Jerry and I have been uh, talking back and forth about uh, rototilling and those types of things. And and uh, um, I, I've been trying to break his therapeutic si cycle and encourage him to use other implements to... Um, to uh, help his therapy well i'll tell you what here's what i have done and what i've been able to do i i i, I don't do fall tilling anymore 
Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's <laughs> good start. But, but spring, watch out. And as a matter of fact, I did an experiment with a, a, a composting. I, I made just a small little area. It, it's on one side is a six foot fence, and on the other side is a three foot fence. And so I put up a pallet, so I made three sides, and I just put in my leaves and, and my organic matter and what refuge from the garden and when Myrna deadheads and all that kind of stuff. And so I rototill that. Instead of turning it, uh, I pull the material towards the front, and then I rototill that. So you're aerating your compost pile, which is, and Caitlin, correct me if Pardon? I'm wrong, it's a good thing to do. Yeah, so... And so your compost really, I like to think about compost as micro farming. So you're really trying to create an environment to let all those compost microbes, those bacteria and fungi and all the worms and everything in there make compost and do your work. And so what do you need? You need food, air, and water for them um, to be really productive for your microbe farm. And so aerating them with the rotisserie is certainly a way to do that. And it breaks things up into smaller pieces, which can also really help and speed up the process. This is the first year I'm starting to use it. it, and it really, truly is. It's black gold. Yeah, yeah. oh, I bet it's beautiful. Man, that soil is and, nice. And and this is a topic that we tend to come back and circle around on a lot. And uh, I tell everybody I'm a I'm a passive composter. When it rains, I turn it. Um, if it doesn't rain, I leave it alone. And I tell people it can take up to seven years for me to have decent compost. <laughs> yeah, partially, especially in our very arid climate here. I mean, if you lived in somewhere that was much more humid um, and you had a lot more water in the compost there, it would go faster. Or if you put a sprinkler on it and if you want it to speed up a little bit and get some water on it, that'll speed it up a little bit. I, I have other more important things that I'm watering besides yeah. my compost pile. <laughs> no hurry. You know, our, I, what I notice a lot in the summer is how much... Um, how much the dumpsters in town fill up with grass clippings, and then in the fall, how much they fill up with leaves. And it just pains me. And sometimes I go around and I take the bags of leaves out of the, out of the dumpsters and take them to the community garden for compost. But it's just, you know, and I, I was out visiting with a friend the other day who just bought a house, and she doesn't really know a lot about gardening or landscaping, and she had some flower beds, and she said, we were looking at them, and she goes, oh, i got to pull all these leaves out of here. And I said, no, leave the leaves there. That They're really good mulch. They're good for the soil. They're going to break down. In fact, every fall you should fill these landscape beds, put, you know, put some leaves in them and let them break down and everything. And I think a lot of folks don't necessarily know or see the value of those materials. And particularly when you mix those two together, your leaves and grass clippings, it's kind of like the perfect blend, really. And they prevent a lot of weeds from germinating if they're covering everything they up. They take a lot of water. It's bare, I see a lot of bare soil here in gardens that are struggling and in the heat. So keeping those that soil covered and your grass clippings from your lawn in the summer, if you pick them up, can be a great mulch as long as you haven't sprayed recently and don't take, transfer some herbicides into your garden. But, right. Um, yep. They're a great material, um, and you can really lay And they're also very tidy, and it keeps the weeds down, makes everything look nice. and um, So it's a, great, it's a great resource, and so don't put those in the dumpster. Um, but but think about using them in your garden. Right? Un unfortunately, for our area, the uh, the leaves have a tendency to dry out, and then, and then when the wind blows, they blow away. So that, that too. Yeah, they they end up someplace else other than where you want them. Right. <clears throat> but I like your idea of, of grabbing those leaves and then taking them and utilizing them for yeah. yourself. Well, we've started doing in the again in the community garden that seems to work really well for leaves and grass clippings and, and coffee grounds. We pick up a lot of coffee grounds around town. There's gas station and restaurants that just make gallons of coffee, and we go pick up buckets of coffee grounds from them, which is another great soil amendment. And we have made um, kind of wire hoop composting bins. We just take woven wire fencing, and you cut maybe a six-foot section or so, and you wrap it around and hook to itself so it makes a 
like a big wire stand-up hoop. Mm-hmm. And then we fill that with leaves, coffee grounds, grass clippings, um, whatever kind of mixes in there nicely, add a lot of water, and let that sit for a year until um, the following summer, and then can use that in the garden. And it's just, and we have about six or eight of those kind of, they're almost like wire barrel looking things. Sure. Stacked up along the fence. It's very tidy. It's easy. They're very lightweight. You can unhook them and move them and then remix it and shovel it back in if you want, or you can do the very slow method. Um, and it's just a very tidy, easy way to do it, um, very lightweight. Or, or hu- unhook it, spread it out, rototill it, and then pile it back exactly. in. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this uh, leads me to... The slow method or the fast method. <laughs> but it leads me to the question, <clears throat> if it's okay to rototill the compost pile, how come not the garden? So the compost, the, the, the cost of rototilling the compost is if you have a cool compost pile, you have worms in there. The worms will only come in if it's relatively cool. And, and you mean cool temperature-wise, not yeah. not cool cool man, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So when it's cool, relatively cool temperature-wise, or when it's not hot, um, it the worms will come in. So when you rototill that, you're damaging. You have the risk of killing the worms. And then you also break up the fungus, and so the fungus come in to the compost or into the soil even when you have a very high carbon to nitrogen ratio. So when you have a lot of high carbon materials. Um, that are really, um, so the bacteria come in first and break down the things that are easy to break down, your proteins, sugars, fats, things like that. The fungus move in later in the cycle, and they break down things like lignin, cellulose, um, some of these larger molecules that are higher in carbon and harder to break down, and the fungus are very, very important for that. They also don't tolerate disturbance very well. So they really, um, because they have these long filaments, and then when you till the soil or till the compost or mix it up, it breaks them up. So, you know, you're not going to ever have exactly the perfect situation, but that's just something to consider when you're composting, too, is maybe mix it early on, and then as things start to settle down, if you've got a few good um, pills into there and you've mixed it up and got some air, then let it sit for a while, let those fungus really work and those worms come in and really work undisturbed. You bet. Very nice. Um, It's time to take a natural break and listen to our sponsors again, and uh, we'll be back in about two minutes. Okay, we're back. This is the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. Jeff Edwards, Jerry Urshabek, and uh, Caitlin Youngquist with us this morning. Last week, uh, Jerry, you were talking about an app that uh, you could take pictures of plants or insects or birds. Birds, and uh, but you didn't have the name of it, and we had an individual call in and want the name of it. I did a little searching. The only thing that I could come up with, which is similar to how you described it is an app called iNaturalist so um, that's available on uh, Android phones and I did I do not have an iPhone so I don't look for the similar thing for an iPhone product according to the news release it was iPhones and Androids okay but again that app's name is iNaturalist you can go out and take pictures of insects plants animals and uh, it will, and birds, thank you, got, can't, got, can't forget, forget about the birds, uh, and it will somehow go out and check and compare with other similar photos and come back with a name and give you that information. Or give you a list of <coughs> names that, that may be. I've, uh, I've downloaded it, I haven't played with it at all, um, but it looks like it should possibly work. But it's called iNaturalist, for the caller who called in last week and wanted the name of it. Um, speaking of birds, uh, uh, Baltimore Orioles. Yes. 
are here. They are. And they are very cool birds. I'm, I'm not necessarily a birder. Uh, when we lived back east, we had a, uh, an oriole feeder, which uh, basically is two spikes and a cup to hold uh, grape jelly. And uh, this week, um, we started putting out halves of oranges and uh we started with strawberry jelly they didn't like that at all yeah grape but it's got to be grape jelly and uh the the females have been starting to show up and feed on those oranges and basically clean the whole entire orange out um and uh, they they're very nervous skittish birds so they don't hang around if you're watching them but if you watch them from afar they have been showing up my neighbor has them <laughs> and they have we're jealous, so we've tried to... <laughs> You've tried to lure them away, haven't you? <laughs> hey, come on over to our house. And so we haven't put out the grape jelly yet, but we have put out the halves of oranges. Okay. And some other birds have been eating on them as well. But, uh, yeah, they're, the birds are always fun to watch. Yeah. Uh, Caitlin, do you have Orioles up in that area, or do you know? As I'm listening to them, that I have seen them. I'm going to look, look, keep an eye out now, though. The, the males are very... Uh, uh, actually, they are the same color as oranges to me. They look like oranges, but they have black on them as well, and they're very uh, interesting. I'm going to look it birds. up and keep an eye out for them. That's a good question. Okay. Yeah. And is it Baltimore Oriole? Well, there's several different styles of Orioles. Okay. And what Baltimore is one of them. Maybe I'm just being uh, Bullocks. It's not Baltimore. It's the Bullocks Oriole. Okay. I'm sure Diane's uh, thinking, oh, that dummy. She's shaking like, the book at Yeah, you. yeah. It's Bullock's Oriole. Is well, the and there's it. also another, that's one, and then the Baltimore is another one. Right, but we don't have Baltimores here, I don't think. I don't think so, but uh, yeah. Bullock's is, is definitely what my neighbor has been seeing from his bird book. Yes, yes. Yeah. Then he's got another little one. I, I forget exactly what he said it was, but it has the yellow tail feathers. The, about an inch on the end of this, their tail. And then they have like a little lightning streak right above the crown of their eyes. They're really cool. <laughs> I don't get close enough to birds to see that kind of detail. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to watch, and you have to have your glasses on. We, we had a buddy in Indiana, you'd ask him what a bird was, and he'd go, it was an LBJ, and it's like, an LBJ bird? He goes, yeah, a little brown job. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at too. If they're bright and, and colorful, I can figure it out. But uh, it, a lot of brown and black and birds. Yeah. Birds. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Uh, I don't want to bring up the subject again, but I'm going to. Uh, I went uh, on a bike ride on Wednesday. About had a passenger in my lap. A squirrel crossed directly underneath me and uh, uh, could have easily crawled up and went for a ride with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like that insurance commercial. Uh, the squirrels are, are destined to make the driver go off the road, and then they fist bump each other. <laughs> yeah, you bet. <laughs> All right, Caitlin, anything else on your list of things that you'd like to cover today? Um, well, just a reminder, really, to take care of that soil and protect it. And I've been... I. I, this is kind of a controversial subject also, I guess, but the picking up of grass clippings off of your lawn. Oh, yeah, let's, let's chat about lawn. that a while. Yep. Or whether you just leave them live <coughs> or they come out of your um, lawnmower. I choose the latter option, partially because I, I don't know, maybe I'm lazy, and partially because I just can't stand the idea of watering and fertilizing and then picking up grass clippings and then doing it all over and over and over again. So when, when I was a kid, we bagged every single time, and I hated it. So, yeah. so as an adult, you can choose to do whatever you 
should so, do, and and I prefer to let them lay. So I, I did a little thinking on this because I, I wanted to make sure I see really w what information was out there. I think there's some concern that it promotes thatch development. But I found some interesting numbers, and I wanted to just run through these really quick and see if it makes sense to you. So um, there's some estimates that about for 1,000 square feet of lawn, you pick up about 200 pounds of grass clippings in a summer. Wow, that's and a that's lot. And that's about 75% water mostly. So that leaves you, what, um, 50, 50 pounds of actually dry grass clippings? Okay. Which is about three and a half to four percent nitrogen in those dry grass clippings. So, how many pounds of nitrogen are you actually pulling back out? So that's about two pounds of nitrogen per year in your grass clippings. And a thousand square feet isn't that big of a space. Right. And now, do you happen to know how much nitrogen you're supposed to put on your lawn per year, according to Extension? Uh, no, I do not have that number in oh, my. I didn't head. know until about a half hour ago. I looked it up, but it's about two pounds of nitrogen a year. <laughs> So you're this is kind of my little calculations this morning as I was looking through it, and I thought, well, this is really intriguing. Now, the thing about um, thatch on your lawn, and we see it sometimes in old pastures, um, old mountain grass, like, like improved pastures that are irrigated, people are using for grazing and hay. You get a real thick thatch layer development. Um, and one of the challenges there is it's very, very high carbon, and it also prevents water and, and nutrients from going into the soil, and so it relies on a very heavy nitrogen application rates to kind of get through that thatch. Right. So, I, so there's this concern that maybe grass clippings can contribute to thatch. Well, if you look at the carbon to nitrogen ratio of grass clippings, they're about 20 to 1, which puts them, those of you who know about composting, it puts them just over that, that um, mineralization, um, like 25, 30 to 1 is about where you start to get too much carbon as you start to get higher than that. Okay. So they should be, in theory, if all these numbers work out right, they should be um, just high enough nitrogen that that nitrogen gets released into the system instead of being um, tied up and creating thatch. So that's my little pitch on, on grass clippings, plus it saves a lot of time. And I, right. you know, I see a disturbing amount of grass clippings in the dumpster in the summer, and I think we're fertilizing and watering, we're growing a hay crop to throw it away. It's just, it's <laughs> <intuitive>. <laughs> you know, there's an individual up in Jackson who actually bales and composts the grass clippings. I that, saw that. I saw an article harvests. about that. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a cool thing, and from it makes a silage out of them, I think, for right. feed or something. Yep, yep, and it's a, it's a cool process, and I, I think more people should be doing it. But Yeah, uh, I think it's really a neat option, especially we have so many really nice parks here in Warland, and we have the schools and the cemetery and the parks and all. There's a lot of grass clippings. And the city staff do leave the grass clippings, leave them most of the year, but early in the year they pick them up, and late in the year they pick them up. But generally they do leave most of them. But it still leaves a lot of grass clippings that could be... Um, used used elsewhere, used differently. Yeah. yeah. So. Or used right on your own lawn. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think you, know, you should just leave them go. The only time I really pick it up is if I get too lazy in the spring and my lawn gets to be nine inches tall and I can't, can't really do anything with it well and that's that's what i was reading yesterday too is that it, you know if when you're cutting your lawn and if you're cutting more than a third of the total cut then you should probably pick it up um but if it's if you're mowing on a regular basis and you're cutting the same amount and it's less than a third of your total length of your lawn it's fine to go back in but it increases <clears throat> the time you're spending on on lawn care and increases the number of time you bend over, and increases the time you lift, and increase. I'm lazy like that too. I don't like to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, speaking of thatch, if you think that you have thatch, is do you need to dethatch it, or will aeration fix that? 
I'm not sure. I'm struggling with that a little bit in the lawn. We purchased a house a couple of years ago, and the lawn hasn't been that great. We've been trying to kind of rehab the lawn. I was out looking at it the other day, and I, um, I'm i going to try a little extra nitrogen on my lawn, trying to get it back going again and trying to break down some of that thatch. Okay. I'm not a lawn expert, um, and I, I don't, I'm trying to find that balance of spending enough time and money on the lawn to make it look decent, but I'm not really one of those people that <laughs> needs to have a perfect lawn and wants to spend all day dealing with it. Right. I, I don't, I want my lawn to look good. I want it to be healthy. I don't want, uh, and if it's healthy and thick, I don't want weeds in it, right? So um, I, I am kind of low-maintenance lawn guy. I, I like to just keep it mowed, make it look good, make sure there aren't any weeds in it. Caitlin, one of the things that you mentioned when you're uh, when you're dumpster diving for for uh, clippings, uh, you know, if if you're if you're pulling that out of the dumpster, you don't know what the source is and if they've been treated or not, right? I don't pull grass clippings out. I just pull bags of leaves. Oh, okay. Grass All clippings right. are usually going there loose, and I don't know what's on them. And we've had problems in the community garden before with grass clippings that have damaged some plants. I, in the fall, people bag their leaves in these big. Car- um, contractor bags and they stuff the dumpsters with these bags of leaves or they'll put them on the sidewalk so i drive around and still leaves out of dumpsters <laughs> so caitlin if you put that into your compost pile would any of those chemicals break down enough that you wouldn't have to worry about it later yeah most most herbicides a compost actually does a fabulous job of breaking down most contaminants there are a few persistent ones and you guys know a little bit more about the herbicide side of things but right. a milestone is one that i see sometimes people using it to spray thistles um, the aminopyrrolid, clopyrrolid, picloram, I believe, are the three that are very, very persistent. And if you read the labels, they say, I think, uh, three to five years before you can plant back a sensitive... M- most, of, most of those uh, turf uses have been pulled from the label, so you won't find those three products available for uh, turf. Okay, so I, I think where I've seen them, some damage is where someone converted a pasture or like a kind of a pasture-like area into a garden and they had sprayed some thistles there previously and there was a little residual. We suspect that was our best guess. And then I think sometimes what happens is people spray, well, we see that here too, is you spray things, people spray things they're not supposed to spray on certain things, right? They go off label. It happens. Um, Or you spray something like even a 240 or a weed and feed and then, and then you turn around too quickly and use those in your lawn, in your garden, as opposed to a nice long compost cycle of leaving it for several months and really letting it break down. Right. Well, compost does a really good job if you give it enough time, because really those those are compounds are just another food source for the microbes. They just break those things down and eat them, basically. Sure. So, Caitlin, if you do have a, um, if you have a source of compost and you have a, a source of soil and you are building a, let's say, a raised bed that's a foot that's a foot tall and so you want to end up with about 10 inches of soil in it can you can you describe for us what you would do how much soil you would actually put in and how much um, uh, using a foot as a guideline how much compost you would add to that to try to get it to a good planting consistency for a garden yeah, I would err on the side of, of a lot of compost, maybe half or so to start or try, try a mix like that. You may have noticed if you take a pot or a small container or a raised bed and you fill it mostly with mineral soil, soil out of the ground, it gets really compacted. It loses its structure, and it gets really compacted and just really dense in there, especially if you have any clay in your soil. And so I would I, I would err on the side of maybe up to half compost or something. You kind of experiment a little bit and see what kind of, consistency you have. If you have a really sandy soil, you can get away with more soil and less 
um, compost. If you have a lot of clay in your soil or, or soil that really compacts pretty easily, and maybe one that's, that doesn't have great structure to it, maybe it's in fill dirt you're using or something that doesn't have a lot of structure left to it, you're going to need a lot of compost to keep that from just becoming a solid block in there. Yeah, so, so if you're building this, if you have the opportunity to build this, would you... Would you use something like a uh, cement mixer to get things mixed evenly? Uh, you certainly evenly? You could. You could also do a lot of layering, um, thin layers. So you could layer soil, compost, soil, compost, and kind of layer it as it goes in. And then uh, let hopefully let, if the bottom is open, if the bottom is open to the soil, those worms can kind of move in and help you mix it. We have some raised beds we're using that we don't have any mineral soil at all. It's 100% organic material that we've layered and kind of composted in the bed itself. When we built the bed, we put uh, wood chips. A lot of moldy alfalfa hay, which, by the way, if you can get, is one of the best things for the garden. Moldy, old alfalfa right. hay got rained on. Yep. And then coffee grounds and some straw and leaf compost and layer, 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 kind of lasagna gardening style. And then let that sit for a season and then the next year plant into it um, and let it kind of compost on site. And then it settles every year, so you have to add a lot to it. Um, but that's one, one option. And the other option would be to kind of layer the soil and the compost together um, or if you had a if you if you had a wheelbarrow or something you could mix it in that would work too. And then don't ever rototill it. Right, or at least plant rototill it very often. <laughs> <laughs> There's those small rototillers that you can lift up and put it into your raised <laughs> bed as well. For 100% to no-till in the community garden, and I've been experimenting now for several years. And the first no-till beds are about five years old now. They're going to their fifth year, and they are beautiful. I mean, the soil is just incredible, and it is so full of worms, and the texture I mean, the structure is amazing. But it was about a two- or three-year lag period because we have a lot of clay in our soil, so it was kind of compacted, and it was a little hard for a couple years, and now it's caught up with itself, and it's incredible soil. And we've transitioned the rest of it over now to no-till, um, and it works great for transplants. And if you have to seed, seed it a little bit, you kind of break up where you're going to seed to give you a good seed-soil contact. Use a lot of mulch. We use really, really heavy mulch and drip lines. Um, and we're kind of transitioning the whole thing over to no-till. I don't have a road. It's a third of an acre for the community garden, and we don't have a road-tiller out there anymore. So do you do uh, that, that French double-dig then? Well, we really haven't. We should have done that. Um, what would have worked really well on the original no-till beds where we started this experiment was those like kind of broad fork, like um, mm -hmm. you kind of stand on that are really wide. Yep. Those would have been ideal, and I didn't really realize that, I think, until a little belatedly. I didn't have one, but if you can stand and just kind of break through that little bit of that compaction, and then those roots can start reaching down there, and then they're really going to build your soil beautifully. Um, so we have not done this the double dig thing. Now, we happen to have really beautiful deep soil in that garden. Now, if you had real shallow soil or really problematic soil, um, it's even another good reason to do a no-till, but you'd build up, so you'd kind of build those layers that was on your garden and kind of build up if you had real shallow, rocky soil. Um, and maybe you really wouldn't want to mix that soil as much. So, Caitlin, as a recreational tiller, self-proclaimed. Uh, okay, self-proclaimed. <laughs> I'm I'm really going to try harder to maybe not till as much. But you know, on this on the other hand, uh, sometimes we throw wheat into this into the garden in the fall, and then rototill as a green manure sure. in the spring. Uh, one year, I bought a, a large uh, uh, bale of straw. Uh, and and oh no, it was corn stalks. No, I did straw too before too, and that didn't work because, of course, you planted wheat. Um, and in the spring, that's that's not a good thing. So then you have to till it some more to get kill the wheat. But uh, I, I like how you say have to. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I think Caitlin might argue with you a little bit. Here's an idea: using something like oats. 
that winter kill. Yep. They'll get some similar benefit to wheat, but the oats will winter kill. They won't really survive. I don't. Most of them won't. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. And then that gives you a, a mulch that's kind of laid down right on top of everything. Well, sure. And then you, in in theory, you could experiment a little bit. You ought to be able to plant right into that. Plant right into it. Right into that. Mm -hmm. Not thatch, but here's your homework. Do a little experiment. Try a little bit, and let me know how it goes. Because I'm. I'll do it. You have an assignment, Jerry. <laughs> I got it, man. <laughs> I want to see. I want to hear how it goes. When I go to class, I always have to have an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> Caitlin, I spoke with you one time before about about pumpkins. I don't know if you recall, oh, but okay. you, we had you had uh, talked to me uh, then, and that was like four four years ago about rototilling and rototiller bottom and i can understand that you know you put stuff into a, a blender and blend it up but that's exactly what's happening with that rototiller you blend it up and there's a point at which it no longer blends it just packs right right and especially on the bottom kind of where you shear it off or if your soil's too wet when you do it as you know let's yeah. since we're on the when the the soil program today how, what's your take on uh, doing soil sampling and understanding what's going on out there i think soil sampling can be really useful a soil test which is where you take a soil sample and you send it to the lab and they analyze it for you for things like your mineral content nitrogen phosphorus potassium calcium things like that they'll also analyze your organic matter and i think there's really two good reasons well, three good reasons to do a soil test. One, you're having a problem, you can't figure out what's wrong with your soil. Some things, things are not going well, and you can't figure it out. In right. industry. So that's a good reason. The other reason is that you're going to spend a lot of money on input. So maybe you are putting in a, a production, a small production garden, you're going to be selling product, or you're um, putting in a large lawn after some construction or something, and you're spending a lot of money on inputs, then definitely spend 30 bucks on a soil test. And the third reason is just if you're curious. If you just are kind of a science nerd maybe or you're just really curious, you can do a soil test. If things are going really well and your garden is healthy and things seem fine, um, you really don't probably need much of a soil test. Um, it's kind of fun over time to watch how your organic matter changes, particularly if you're starting to do less rototilling and more mulching. Do a soil test this year and then maybe three years after you've changed your practices and added a lot more organic matter, do it again and see so your organic matter. So you have a baseline to kind of... Hmm? You it's have kind a, of fun that way. Yeah. It won't change very quickly, but over a few years it'll start to change slowly, and that's kind of a neat thing to see. So you think uh, within five years, if you are doing changing your management practices, your garden will be healthier than what you started? I think so, absolutely. And I think if you start mulching heavily right away with good, clean mulch material, you'll see a difference within the first year. And you'll start to lift up. So mulch, especially in the fall, don't leave your soil bare in the fall. And it was really fun this spring to go into the garden and see where we had mulch. We've, in the previous years, we've been a little short on mulch material that was clean, and this year we got a bunch of old moldy alfalfa hay. Perfect. And, mulch, and then you could pull back those mulch layers and look at the bare soil next to them and the soil underneath that mulch, and you could see where the worms had come right up to the surface. You could see where the soil had been protected, and it was like a just a really stark contrast. And so I just really encourage folks to not leave their soil bare in the fall, if at all possible, and to use a lot of heavy, clean mulch and during the growing season in the summer, and I think they'll see a big difference. So, um, worms are very important. What do worms actually do in the soil? So the worms break down a lot of the, the organic matter. They'll take a lot of the, the decomposing material on the surface and they'll take it down into the soil. And they're actually consuming things, right? They are. They're actually consuming it and then their worm castings and the, the poop. The worm poop is good for the plants and releases some nutrients. They also help aerate the soil and help air and water move through the soil, which is actually really important. We don't think about 
plant roots needing air, but they really do, and they, of course, need water, and they need the water to move through the soil and not sit on the surface of the soil. And so the worms really help do that, and they're really kind of nature's rototillers, and so they do what, um, over the long term, and with enough of them, they, they do what Jerry wants to do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we have uh, folks who complain about the worms or nightcrawlers in their lawns. And Making their lawns lumpy. Leaving the lumps behind. And, and do you have any idea, first of all, why there would be so many worms in a turf that would cause that, uh, what they're actually looking for? Um, and I guess the other thing is, do you, have you heard or have you uh, discussed or read anything about, you know, if they are a problem, like people think they are, what can you do to mediate that? Yeah, there are a lot of different kinds of worms, and to be honest, I, I that comes to the edge of my knowledge in terms of there's just what's the night crawlers in the lawn. I like I like pushing you to the edge, Kate. Yeah, you are. In terms of what's the worms in the in the garden, I have a worm bin in my kitchen underneath my counters, which is the little red wigglers, and uh -huh. those are not the same worms we find that overwinter in the garden and that are native to our area in terms of worms. And they are really, they eat rotten food material, and so they, they have their niche, and then there's worms that live in the, sort of in the surface, and then there's worms that live really deep down that go more with vertical movement. And then the night crawlers in the lawn, that I don't really understand, and not, maybe that's a different kind of worm. Um, I suspect they're eating the decomposing, um, like the thatch and the roots in the lawn. Okay. And so they eat, they eat organic material, so they're eating right. that. Why they're making it lumpy, I'm not clear. Well, because they come to the surface and then uh, leave their castings on the surface when they go yeah, back. Yeah, but I, worm castings are so small. The ones we see in the garden are so small. Which right. I wonder if the night crawlers in the lawn are something different. Yeah, yeah. Get into fishing, I guess. <laughs> 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 yes, get them to c catch them at night and uh, yeah. take go go out and go fishing. Yeah, I've seen people use mustard to bring the worms up to the surface of the soil. We use that for worm count sometimes in research. Mustard, like... Uh, yeah, mustard powder. Just like food, mustard? Yeah, just sprinkle it on and water it in. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't remember off the top of my head the exact amount, but it, it burns them. They don't like it, and they'll come to the surface. Kind of like shocking the water for fish counts, you know? Huh. Right. Uh, so another do that and then collect them all. I don't know. So another thing that drives uh, worms crazy is the husks off of black walnuts. <clears throat> if, oh, really? Yes. Um, I, uh, I did a uh, little trial myself. We had a lot of black walnuts when we lived in Iowa, and... Um, Collect, I collected the nuts and then uh, rinsed, let them sit in the bucket till the husks were about ready to pop off and then went to wash them off and wherever I ran the rinseate water, the worms just boiled up out of the ground. It was, it was bizarre. So. Like they didn't like it, it sounds like. Well, I don't like black walnuts, so I can understand why worms didn't like yeah. it. <laughs> and that drove them out of the soil into the surface. That's really interesting. Well, there's a way to get natural way to get rid of perhaps your worms in the lawn. Right. We lived in a house that every time it rained heavily, we would have worms. I guess they were night crawlers would come up to the surface to try to get away from the water, and gee, we collected a lot of them. My my, yeah. my first entrepreneurial project was selling worms, collecting and selling worms when I was in grade school. Yep, guaranteed to catch fish, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> what would you do? would you sell them to fishermen? Would you who would you sell them to? I sold them to whoever bought them. Whoever bought them. <laughs> whoever had the money, man. Didn't you ever have a lemonade stand? You sold it to whoever came by. <laughs> I only sold lemonade to thirsty people. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, so we are down into the last couple of minutes of our program. Uh, Jerry, do you have any parting comments? That I you would do. Like to I make do. Today? Of course, this is the time of, of watching out for mosquitoes. Standing water is probably one of those things that we can also help the mosquito people do, the mosquito control people. We just can't rely upon uh, them spraying uh, in the evening, and we have to look at our standing water areas and so we, uh, we're guilty we leave buckets out oh, you know we pick weeds leave the bucket out and then two days later they have mosquitoes they have, growing in yeah, them so yeah, yeah. yeah it's uh, dump or, those things the larva or wheelbarrows or whatever yeah. and so you know tires uh, little little uh, cups uh, i had a, a, a area that i had uh for my growing uh, in the spring there's those little cups and all those little trays and gee i dumped about three gallons of water out of it <laughs> and some mosquitoes as well. Uh, the other thing, uh, we have uh, confirmed reports of rabies in the uh, North Torrington, Veterans, southwest of Yoder, four skunks, one raccoon. Uh, get your pets vaccinated or a booster. Stay away and, from those wild animals. And if you really see your dog fighting with a raccoon or a skunk, don't try to break them up. Uh, you get in the middle of it, now you have rabies as well. Which and is a bad thing. Understanding that treatment is rather long and precarious and uh, maybe on the painful side true true and then though my last question of the day okay. is pampas grass i have a friend that has four four of them the crown is dying would you re yep so jerry and i talked about this during a break and uh, pampas grass is one of those grasses that isn't quite uh tolerant to our area and what happens is people go in and mow the crown off a little bit too early Water in the fall? In the spring. In the spring. And so um, uh, water will get down into the crown, and then it will freeze, and that's what's killing that particular pampas grass. So it's just maybe cutting it off much, much later in right. the spring. Yep. I, you know, I would wait until uh, the end of May to cut off decorative At least, grasses. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Great. all right. Um, Caitlin, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh uh, it's been fun, and we'll have to do it again if you're interested. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it, and um, I look forward to, to visiting with you again in the future. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, Caitlin. Jerry, thank you for being here today. Absolutely. Greg, thanks for running the board. You're always keeping us going. Thank you. Okay. You're <laughs> we will uh, see you all next week.